0: This is a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner uh, entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy An Eyewitness View of Occult History, selected and introduced by Christopher Bamford. And uh, I'm going to begin with the prologue, which is a personal statement from the Bar document for Edward Charette. And here's a little prelude to that. As is so often the case with servants of humanity and with saints, Rudolf Steiner's life and mission are almost indistinguishable and mutually illuminating. Every event in his life appears significant for his mission, and no aspect of his mission is without biographical counterpart. In other words, biography is mission. Hence the value of the following autobiographical notes. The notes were written for the French mystical writer, poet, and dramatist Edward Charay, eighteen forty one to nineteen twenty six. Chere was a member of the French Theosophical Society, and since eighteen ninety-nine had been corresponding with Marie von Sievers before she met Rudolf Steiner, who later became Marie Steiner. She translated several of Shere's works, including title The Great Initiates, and the plays titled The Mysteries of Eloysis, and titled The Children of Lucifer. Steiner first met Charest at the Paris Theosophical Congress of 1906. Charest wrote of this meeting, For the first time I was certain that an initiate stood before me. For many years I had lived in spirit with initiates of the past, whose history and development I had attempted to describe. Here at last one stood before me on the physical plane. Quote. Steiner and Chiré became friends and co-workers. Thus it was that Steiner visited Chiré at his home in Bar Alsace from September 5th to the 12th, 1907. Chiré was planning to write a major introduction to the French translation of Steiner's title Christianity as Mystical Fact. To help him with this, Steiner gave a talk every evening. He also wrote down these notes, which were perhaps also notes for the talks that he gave. Churay and Steiner remained friends until, forced apart by the politics of the Great War, they reconciled in 1922. The document is extraordinarily rich, with every sentence deserving amplification and commentary. All the strands that Steiner wove into his Theosophy are represented. Section 1 by Rudolf Steiner My attention was drawn to Kant at an early age. At fifteen and sixteen I studied Kant intensively. And before going on to college in Vienna, I had an intense interest in Kant's early nineteenth century orthodox followers, who have been completely forgotten by official historians of thought. In addition, I immersed myself in Fichte and Schelling. During this period, and this is already due to external spiritual influences, I gained complete understanding of the concept of time. This knowledge was in no way connected with my studies and was guided totally by my spiritual life. I understood there is a progressing evolution, the astral occult, which interferes with the progressing one. This knowledge is the precondition of spiritual clairvoyance. Then came acquaintance with the agent of the M., master. Then came intensive study of Hegel. Then the study of modern philosophy, as it developed from the 1850s onward in Germany, particularly the so-called theory of knowledge in all its branches. I did not meet the M immediately, but first an emissary who was completely initiated into the secrets of plants and their effects and into their connection with the cosmos and human nature. Officially I studied mathematics, chemistry, physics, zoology, botany, mineralogy and geology. From early 1880 onward I started to work on Goethe's scientific studies. I wrote introductions to Goethe's botany, zoology, geology and theory of color. Theosophical ideas can already be found in these introductions clothed in philosophical idealism. They deal also with Haeckel. My 1886 title, Theory of Knowledge, is like a philosophical continuation of these introductions. In all this, the public display of esoteric ideas was out of the question, and the spiritual forces standing behind me gave me only one piece of advice, quote, everything in the guise of idealistic philosophy, Close quote. The first contact with theosophical circles in Vienna at the end of the 1880s had no outward consequences. In my last months in Vienna, I wrote a little publication titled Goethe as Founder of a New Science of Aesthetics. Then I was called to the Goethe and Schiller Archive in Weimar, which was founded at the time to edit the scientific writings of Goethe. My next aim was to present the foundation of my world conception in purely philosophical terms. I did this in two books, titled Truth and Knowledge and titled The Philosophy of Freedom, also translated Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path. Then the Nietzsche episode occurred. For a time, I was considered to be the most uncompromising Nietzschean. 1890 to 1897, I was in Weimar. In 1897, I went to Berlin to edit the Magazin for literature. My next task was to bring a spiritual current to bear in literature. Gently and slowly, I guided it Into esoteric paths. In the meantime, a connection with the working classes had been established. I became a teacher at the Berlin Workers' Educational Institute. I taught history and the natural sciences. Eventually, in harmony with the spiritual forces that stood behind me, I could say to myself, You have provided the philosophical foundation for a world conception. You have shown your understanding of current directions of thought by treating them only as someone who fully supports them. No one can therefore say, This esotericist speaks of the spiritual world because he is ignorant of the philosophical and scientific developments of our time. By this time I had reached my fortieth year. Before this age... No one may present himself or herself as a teacher of esotericism in the sense of the masters. Every instance of someone teaching earlier has been an error. Part two. In the early part of the fifteenth century, Christian Rosenkreutz went to the East to find a balance between the initiations of the East and the West. One consequence of this, following his return, was the definitive establishment of the Rosicrucian stream in the West. In this form, Rosicrucianism was meant to be a strictly secret school for the reparation of those things that would become the public task of esotericism at the end of the 19th century, when material science would have found a provisional solution to certain problems. Christian Rosenkreutz described these problems as One, the discovery of spectral analysis, which revealed the material constitution of the cosmos. Number two, the introduction of material evolution into organic science. Number three, the recognition of states of consciousness different from our normal one through the acceptance of hypnotism and suggestion. Only when this material had reached fruition in science were certain Rosicrucian principles from esoteric science to be made public. Part 3 When H. P. Blavatsky and H. S. Alcott founded the Theosophical Society in 1875 in New York, it had a decidedly Western nature, titled Isis Unveiled, in which Madame Blavatsky revealed a large number of esoteric truths has just such a Western character. But it must be said about this book that it often presents the great truths of which it speaks in a distorted or even caricatured way. It is like a face of harmonious proportions appearing distorted in a convex mirror. The things said in Title Isis Unveiled are true, but how they are said is a lopsided mirror image of the truth. They are true because the great initiates of the West, who also inspired the Rosicrucian wisdom, inspired them. The distortion arises because of the inappropriate way in which H. P. Blavatsky's soul received these truths. The educated world should have seen, in this fact alone, evidence that a higher source inspired these truths, for no one who rendered these truths in so distorted a manner could have created them. Because the Western initiators saw how little opportunity they had to allow the stream of spiritual wisdom to flow into humankind by this means, they decided to drop the matter in this form for the time being. But the door had been opened. Blavatsky's soul had been prepared so that spiritual wisdom could flow into it. Eastern initiators were then able to take hold of her. To begin with, these Eastern initiators had the best of intentions. They saw how Anglo-American influences were steering humanity toward the terrible danger of a completely materialistic impregnation of thinking. These Eastern initiators, therefore, wanted to imprint their form of spiritual knowledge, which had been preserved through the ages on the Western world. The Theosophical Society took on its Eastern character under the influence of this stream. The same influence inspired Sinnott's title Esoteric Buddhism and Blavatsky's title The Secret Doctrine. Both of these also distorted the truth. Sinnott's work distorts the high teaching of the initiators through an extraneous and inadequate philosophical intellectualism. And Blavatsky's title, Secret Doctrine, does the same because of her chaotic soul. The result was that both the Eastern and the Western initiators withdrew their influence in increasing measure from the official Theosophical Society, and the latter became the arena for all kinds of occult forces that distorted the great cause. There was a short phase when Annie Besant entered the stream of the initiators through her pure and elevated mentality, but this phase came to an end when Besant gave herself up to the influence of certain Indians who developed a grotesque intellectualism derived from certain philosophical teachings, German ones in particular, which they misinterpreted. This was the situation when I was faced with the necessity of joining the Theosophical Society. True initiates stood at its cradle, and that is why it is at present an instrument of current spiritual life, even if subsequent events have resulted in certain imperfections. Its continued fruitful development in Western countries is completely dependent on the extent to which it shows itself capable of assimilating the principle of Western initiation among its influences. For the Eastern initiations must of necessity leave untouched the Christ as the central cosmic factor of evolution. Without this Christ principle, the Theosophical Movement will have no decisive influence on Western cultures, which trace their beginnings back to Christ's life on earth. Taken on their own, the revelations of oriental initiation would have to stand aside from the living culture in the West in a sectarian manner. They could only hope for success within evolution if the principle of Christianity were to be eradicated from Western culture. But this would be the same as eradicating the essential meaning of the earth, which lies in the recognition and realization of the intentions of the living Christ. To reveal these intentions in the form of complete wisdom, beauty and activity is the deepest aim of Rosicrucianism. Regarding the value of Eastern wisdom as the subject of study, one can only say that this study is of the highest value because Western cultures have lost their sense of esotericism while the Eastern ones have preserved theirs. But equally it should be understood that the introduction of a correct esotericism in the West could only be of the Rosicrucian Christian type, because this latter gave birth to Western life, and if it were lost, humanity would deny the meaning and destiny of the earth. The harmonious relationship between science and religion can flower only in this esotericism, while every amalgamation of Western knowledge with Eastern esotericism can only produce such unproductive mongrels as synods titled Esoteric Buddhism. The correct way can be represented schematically, and there's a picture, and then the incorrect way, of which titled Esoteric Buddhism and title The Secret Doctrine are examples, would be represented as, and then there's another diagram. And that is the end of the prologue, the bar document by Rudolf Steiner.